0: On the job, Francis Leach
1: and Sally Rugg. It's on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. My name's Francis Leach.
2: My name's Sally Rugg, and I can say whatever the hell I like because I just quit my job. What breaking news! I straight up quit my job. You quit your job? <laughs> yeah.
1: Now let's talk let's, I, talk. let's talk through how you did it. Did you do the? You know, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Go and jump a lake type quit. Or did you have the the tearful and sort of maudlin conversation with a, a much-loved colleague who you had to resign to, or was it just, a you know, a cold letter slamming down on a desk? How was it done? Well, yeah,
2: I waited until we were in a really serious, important meeting, and then I said, that's it, and I flipped my desk in the air, and all the papers flew across flew across the room, but as they were still in midair, I, like, threw a match on them, so I went, whoosh, um, No, not at all. Uh, I thought about it for a really long time, because that's what I do, think about things way too much. And then I told my manager, I worked for a global company called Change.org. And I told my manager in the US, who's amazing, who cried and I was like, oh, that's nice. Didn't expect that. And then I told my team and then they all cried. And I was like, oh, that's nice. But like, what have I done? (laughs) Like everyone, like I thought it would be quite sort of happy news or, you know, it turns out that this sort of resilient, capable team, I thought that I had hired and developed are actually just a bunch of sooks. (laughs) But no, um, yeah. And so it's my, my last day of work is tomorrow we are recording this the day before my last day at work. So by the time we all listen to this, might be a few days have passed. But yeah, I'm just I'm I'm feeling really excited about, you know, what could come next. I'm feeling really proud of the work I've done with change.org and the campaigns I've been, you know, had the honor of being able to support. And yeah, you know how sometimes you just feel like your work here is done. Yeah, so it's it, it's a happy departure. It's a um one that comes with I think, you know, looking for a new challenge when so much of my life is the same. It's the same routine. The cats wake you up at five a.m you know, have a little quibble with your daughter about what she's going to have for breakfast. You know, like it's just the same. <laughs> but, my God, it's weird leaving a job. It's a weird time.
1: Let's talk about it a bit because it is part of you know, making your working life better is what on the job's about and leaving well or leaving on your own terms so you feel like you're in control of the decision. not always happens when you leave a job and we know about this because so many people are in insecure work and, you know, their work just dries up without any ceremony. Or opportunity to uh, to have a conversation about what their future holds. But if you do leave a job, if it is your choice, leaving it well or on your own terms, really important, particularly, I think, for your own sense of self, but also for the relationships, which you've clearly mentioned here, Sally, that your work uh, mates obviously really love working with you and have enjoyed so much of what you've brought to their working experience and, and enriched their professional lives. And that's reflected in their response to the news that you're leaving. So it's really important to honour that, isn't it, in the way you leave? And some people don't like the confrontation of actually telling people, I'm leaving. Uh, some people don't like the idea of change at all uh, and don't leave because of that as well. So there's a it's a threshold you cross because as soon as you do in any job, in any work environment, your relationships... Instantly change. I mean, I hear a lot from my work uh, in sport over a long period of time and it'll be happening right now across all sports codes where players after 15 years at a club really close with their teammates will say, I'm retiring. And from that moment on, their relationship with the coach and their teammates, whatever sport it is, has instantly changed. The dynamic changes. And that's what happens with us as well in our jobs.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's funny you say, like, from that moment, because I handed in my resignation a couple of weeks ago, you know, with the the genuine, sincere intention. You know, I was like, you know, I'm going to continue the next few weeks working at my ultimate best. You know, I've got all these big projects to wrap up, and blah blah blah. But the reality is, well, uh, for me, maybe, maybe this is a maybe this is a personal thing. But sort of, once I'd handed in my resignation, I was like oh, God, like, it's difficult to then be like, actually, I do want to find motivation for wrapping up these final projects or... Yeah, it's sort of like a line in the sand, even though you've got to serve out a notice period. It's been... It's funny because... So many people listening to this pod, I reckon, would know what it's like to tie so much of your identity with not only what you do for work, but your workplace and your, you know, your social circle, your daily motivation, the things that, you know, interest you and all the rest of it. So changing jobs can be, it's like a pretty big thing. And I'll tell you what, it's a weird thing to do in lockdown.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because changing jobs also usually comes with a change of environment and a, and a change of routine. Like you might be changing your commute if you have one, or, you know, which part of the city or town you or, you know, wherever you're working and therefore you're negotiating a whole new way of living. You know, if you used to be somebody who would go to a gym at lunchtime or after, after work or go for a run before work or whatever routine you had, that all shifts. But in lockdown, you're changing jobs, but the world kind of remains weirdly the same. Mm,
2: I think that's right. That is objectively right. But I'm more meant like we're not going to have a cake at lunchtime or something or like we're not, you know, we're not all going to. Go for a drink after work and I'll have a couple of wines and be like, Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Get out the karaoke you know, that, machine.
2: Yeah. Or be like, you <laughs> I remember that time in that meeting where you said <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> what did you mean when you said blah blah um, blah blah blah?
2: Yeah. But I think what I will do to mark the occasion. Uh, like at the end of my final day, I think I'll maybe I'll uh, jump on Facebook Live, or maybe I'll zoom a bunch of friends, or I don't know. Just try and get a few friends together to have a glass of something and, and cheers to the to the three and a half years of of work because it's a weird thing to do by yourself. In your bedroom.
1: Well, congratulations to you on, on your new job. We'll talk more about that in another time. What you're going to be doing next, but I hope that uh, your goodbyes with everyone there over the next few days are, are suitably uh, fulfilling for you and a recognition of all the great work that you've done, and um, onwards to better things. Now, this week's podcast is kind of related to all that because on Sunday, uh, yesterday, it will be on the 28th of August. It's uh, equal pay day. Which is a day that focuses on the fact that, well, let's face it, we still don't have equal pay when it comes to men and women. And it's still a fight that's going on, one that should have been resolved a long time ago, Sally, but remains an issue that if anything, if the pandemic has taught us anything, has actually highlighted that the economic gap between men and women, not just in pay, but in other areas in the economy is bigger than ever.
2: Yeah. I think one of the really important things to sort of flag at the top of any discussions about the gender pay gap and like financial inequality between genders is that, yes, it is the case that quite often men and women doing the literal exact same job in the exact same workplace have a paid difference like that is sometimes true often true but when we talk about the gender pay gap it's not just you know identical jobs in identical workplaces for identical the amount of time it's like this broad macro issue where jobs that women tend to do that have the same amount of qualification the same you know years studies the same amount of risk and you know physical labor and whatever it might be receive a far lower salary than jobs that are stereotypically and historically male dominated spaces and so we see that like with the difference between say early childhood educators and tradespeople and construction workers or like teaching and nursing compared to um, other male-dominated industries. And so, it is a direct, acute one-to-one comparison, but it's also far more widespread than that. And I think that's always important to note because you'll quite often hear people predominantly, you know, CEO, men in power often being like, oh no, there's no such thing as a gender pay gap because we wouldn't pay men and women differently in our company. And it's like, yeah but the the issue is much broader than that. <laughs>
1: It sure is. And Christine Savica is a brilliant journalist and she's been writing a series of articles this year for the Saturday paper on that very issue and the way you've uh, framed it there. Very more nuanced approach to this when it comes to superannuation, when it comes to access to uh, sustained employment capacity, particularly for carers, which predominantly falls to women as well. All of those issues are wrapped up in the articles that she's been writing for the Saturday paper. So I thought on the cusp or just after equal Pay Day, it was time to revisit this issue with her and the work that she's been doing on this so this is an interview I did with Christine a couple of weeks ago Uh, if you have a look at the show notes some of those articles the links to those are are just below there as well if you want to read them in depth but here's a conversation I had with Christine about these issues a little while ago here on the job on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung Christina, welcome to On The Job. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've been writing a lot in the last couple of months or throughout your career on these issues around gender pay and the enormous gap and disparity between uh, women's work and what they're paid for and the environments they work in. But There's really one really interesting case that you're writing about it right now, and that's about a claim that's going on in Sydney and in New South Wales that might actually be a game changer for people uh, working in those caring industries. Tell us about that.
0: So the aged care workers through their union, the health services union, are bringing what many are calling a landmark case to the Fair Work Commission, seeking a 25% increase in their wages. And the reason that this particular case caught my attention, and I think many people are calling it a landmark case, is I personally have really wanted to write about uh, this concept of what we call the undervaluing of women's work. I've written about it before. I really wanted to elevate that and bring that to our attention and the contribution that it makes to the gender pay gap. Because quite simply, if you're in a female-dominated profession, that reduces your pay, just by virtue of the fact that the profession that you're in is female-dominated. And research shows us that if a profession that was once male-dominated becomes female-dominated, the pay goes down for the exact same job that men used to do. And it's particularly acute in the caring professions, and we see that in aged care. So the largely women, 85% women who work in this industry, just aren't paid in relation to the value of the work that they do. And the reason for that is because it is a female dominated profession. So they are really challenging that now at the Fair Work Commission. And many people have said to me, if successful, they think that this is going to be the start of a broader reckoning that we're having at the moment around the, undervaluing
1: of women's work now you talk about in in your recent story in the saturday paper a couple of women that you write about josie peacock is one virginia ellis is another both in their mid 50s who are in these caring industries workers in aged care and uh, and have real challenges not only making ends meet but just the challenge of doing their jobs can you tell us about those two women
0: Yes, I I was really privileged to speak to those women because they really bring these issues to life. So both of them have worked in this industry for decades. They've devoted their life literally to caring for others. And they told me about the long days And they told me about the flexibility that's required. They told me about the challenges of the job and increasingly the challenges of the job because you're dealing with not only complex health needs, but social needs. And you're dealing with their family and their family's worries and their concerns. And no day is ever the same. The hours are long. But one of the things that they both told me was their experience and the experience of a number of their, most of their colleagues really, is that they simply can't, because the work is so insecure, they can't get enough hours to make ends meet. And so they're often working multiple jobs across multiple locations with multiple providers in a really insecure situation. But despite this, they... Say, you know, they love their job. They're fed up with the undervaluing of the work that they do, but they love their job and they're really committed to the people that they care
1: for. And this is part of what the dynamic is where women are exploited. Because of their vocational commitment to their work, they're less likely to be aggressive in in some way asserting themselves industrially and maybe taking strike action or being willing to work to rule. Any of those things that might actually help them leverage uh, their environment. Of course, the casualisation doesn't help, but that's part of what's going on here, isn't it? People are being exploited for their passion and their commitment to their work.
0: Yeah, I think they're definitely being exploited. I'd say that that's a good word for what's going on. I think that that concept of women being particularly in caring professions, uh, what you would call laborers of love, kind of cuts both ways. So, you know, you could argue that perhaps they haven't been fighting their own corner because they love their job and they're committed to it. You could probably debate that, and I think that the pandemic has definitely changed that. But I think it's more that that idea that they're laborers of love is forced upon them ah. by broader society that therefore doesn't value their work is really the issue. So we as a society, part of the reason we don't value the work women do, particularly in care and professions, is because we expect from women for free. We don't attach a social value to it, so the conditions are very poor, but we also don't attach a financial value to it because we simply expect them to do it for free. Women for generations have done this kind of work for free. So we don't recognize the skill, we don't recognize the commitment, and we're not prepared to put and attach a financial reward to it. And that kind of cultural paradigm is really at the heart of undervaluing of women's work and that's what this case is challenging and if it successfully challenges it in the aged care profession it could also challenge that in early years education um, in disability care all of these undervalued caring professions
1: you talk about Josie Peacock I mean you write about her and that at times she's managed up to 15 staff had hundreds of volunteers under her remit and she was just earning $28 an hour. So she's basically working at a, at a critical managerial level, but being paid modestly above the award rate. So where's the disconnect there? Is it because she's not a man? Am I being, um, am I being outrageous in suggesting that if she was a bloke, it no, might be it's different? It's
0: because, it's, it's, it's because she works in a female-dominated profession doing the kind of work that we expect as a society – women to do for free. We expect them to be laborers of love. We expect them to do this work because they love the job. And by nature of their gender, they're predisposed to care for people. And why should they ask for money for that? That's really what we're talking about here.
1: But you have written that I mean, research has found that when women enter in great numbers in a particular sector, pay declines for the same job that men used to do. So is it just an assumption that women will work for less?
0: So what we know here in Australia is that the undervaluing of women's work, the poor pay and the poor conditions that we attach to industries that are dominated by women – accounts for about one fifth of the gender pay gap. Research tells us that if a industry used to be dominated by men and then becomes dominated by women or vice versa, pay goes down <laughs> or pay goes up. So you can look at kind of computer programmers, for example, that used to be considered a sort of clerical female job. Um, In hidden figures, you can see that at NASA. But then it became kind of IT became a sort of blokey profession. And then suddenly, (laughs) you know, there were lots of men making lots of money in that profession. We haven't seen that in the caring professions. So the pay and the conditions have remained very low. So what the health services union will argue, what they're effectively doing is bringing something that's called a work value case to the Fair Work Commission. And they will argue that this work is undervalued precisely because it's female dominated. They will also argue that the skills required to do the work have changed over time and that that hasn't been reflected in the wages and they will be seeking what's called an equal remuneration order or a 25% pay rise.
1: So has COVID changed the dynamic here? Has COVID and the experience of women in these caring roles and in these frontline jobs brought a sharper focus to just how vital that work is? And will that be enough to change things?
0: Absolutely, and not just here but around the world. The undervaluing of women's work is not a phenomenon unique to Australia, it's not a phenomenon unique to the caring professions of Australia. It happens everywhere. The pandemic has really highlighted what I write about a really interesting dichotomy. So the women who work in these care professions were really thrust onto the front line. And in other countries around the world, you know, some of them paid with their lives because they contracted COVID at work. And, you know, it really showed not only how hard this work is, but how risky this work can be in this current pandemic. And we had lots of campaigns like claps for carers, <laughs> but that really galvanized the workforce to say, well, those claps in that appreciation is all very well and good. And it's very nice that you are at long last acknowledging the value of the work that we do in this new context. But, you know, kind of quote Jerry Maguire, show me the money. And I think where you have a workforce that maybe, as, as Josie and Virginia described to me, it was a, they were a little bit quiet. They didn't want to walk out on the people that they were caring for to take industrial action. They're really fed up now, and this has just sort of lit a fire, I think, in this sector and in other female-dominated sectors. And one of the things that's happened internationally during the pandemic that I found really interesting, and as a long-time observer of this issue... was actually quite delighted about was that these um, essential AF t-shirts, so essential as fuck um, t-shirts, a bit of a play on that kind of feminist AF slogan that many feminists will wear. And lots of essential AF merchandise started to sell like hotcakes on Etsy. And women in these professions started to wear these. And I thought, oh my God, this is so fantastic because at long last, this somewhat beige, but vitally important feminist issue of the undervaluing of women work. As I said, it accounts for about a fifth of the gender pay gap here in Australia. Many people don't realize that. They don't make that connection. But it finally has this kind of t-shirt-worthy slogan. It has this t-shirt-worthy rallying cry that's galvanizing this workforce and their union, which has seen a 20% increase in membership since they took this case and they launched this campaign, to fight their own corner and to raise this issue and to say, thanks for the claps, but. We actually want our work to be properly recognized and rewarded with pay.
1: Well, her pay gap's still at 13.4%. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Let's look at the structural issues that are a consequence of that as well. And one of the things you've been writing about, and this is a really uh, you know looming issue that is with us for a while now, is the increase in homelessness for middle-aged and older women as a consequence of their, their lack of superannuation savings, their, their lack of uh, permanent employment and ongoing entitlements that might've been the bedrock for them to build stability in their lives. Can you give us an overview of, of what that critical picture Looks like at the moment?
0: So, I've been doing um, the the story that we've been talking about today about the aged care workers case uh, is part of a three part series that I'm doing for the Saturday paper about women's economic security, or probably more accurately put, insecurity. And the first story that I wrote in the series was about the crisis of homeless older women that we absolutely should have seen coming. And Women over the age of 55 are the fastest-growing portion of the homeless population, and women retire with, on average, about half the superannuation of men. In the aged care profession, they retire with about $18,000 on average of supers, not very much. That's literally what we're talking about, Gerard Hayes says to me when we talk about working your way into poverty. And it's that ultimate injustice of the poor pay and the poor conditions over a lifetime mean that you don't have very much of a nest egg. You don't have very much to fall back on. So any type of instability, say a pandemic or, you know, a divorce or illness uh, can throw you into homelessness. So over the last two censuses, we've seen this figure. That's where we get the figure from, that they're the fastest growing portion of the homeless population over the age of 55 steadily rise. and. We also know that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted women, their ability to earn, their ability to save. So everyone was telling me when I was reporting that story about the crisis of homeless older women we should have seen coming, that when the census figures come out next year, that that upwards trajectory that we've seen in the last two censuses is most likely to increase And the question for this government is, are you going to wait until that writing is on the wall and those figures are out and the human impacts are very clear, or are you going to do something about it now to shore up women's economic security and support and prevent this from happening?
1: And what's your sense of that? Given that that data is available and there's no denying what's going on, have you got any faith that there's going to be an equivalent response that might mitigate what sounds like is going to be a generational disaster?
0: I would like to say yes. Um, We have seen a few things. So we've seen the Morrison government appoint a dedicated minister for women's economic security in Jane Hume. We also saw the return of the women's budget statement at the last budget after a pause of about seven years. However, women's economic security was supposed to be on the agenda at National Cabinet last Friday, and it disappeared from the agenda. And I haven't been able to get a straight answer out of anyone in Jane Hume's office, Maurice Payne's office, or at the Prime Minister's office as to. Why? I can imagine it had something to do with the current COVID situation. But when it's likely to be rescheduled, they've just gone silent on the issue. And what's more, they have defunded their six National Women's Alliances. And one of them is dedicated to women's economic security. It's been around for about 20 years, the Security for Women's Alliance. And when they announced the funding for the National Women's Alliances uh, about two weeks ago, they had defunded the Security for Women Alliance. So I... I'm a little bit cynical (laughs) or a little bit concerned about the extent to which the words or the gestures that we're seeing are, you know, the women's budget statement and dedicated women's minister for economic security is actually going to translate into meaningful, substantive policy and change to address some of the issues that we've been talking about today.
1: Christina, thank you so much for being on the job. We'll follow this story closely. We can read about it in the Saturday paper, which is published in, the in Saturday. the
0: Saturday paper, yes, yes. So there's an ongoing series about women's economic security. So we're two down. We've got one
1: more to go. <laughs> and you can subscribe to the Saturday paper, which I highly recommend if you're interested in public affairs. It's a fantastic read. It's online too, saturdaypaper.com.au. You don't have to get it delivered paper stole to your door anymore. You can just read it on your tablet or your iPhone or whatever the device is your favourite means of consuming information. Thank you for being with us, Christina. Thank you for having
0: me.
1: Thanks, Christine Zwicker, there, a journalist and author, talking to us about the issues around the gender pay gap and women in the workforce. Read her stuff in the Saturday paper, and also the links are in our show notes as well if you want to catch a couple of her articles. It's on the job. <laughs> On the Job's a podcast all about your working life, and one thing that makes your working life better is being vaccinated. So to help inspire you to do that, you can go to shop.australianunions.org.au slash collections, and everyone who is vaccinated can pick up a fantastic set of on-the-job... Union I'm Vaxxed stickers to put on the back of your car, bike, scooter, whatever it is to let people know that you're vaccinated and to encourage others to do the same. Go to shop.australianunions.org.au and use the code on the job in the store and make sure that you are vaccinated and share the news. All right, On The Job back now with Sally Rugg. Sal, uh, end of the... This week's episode, I need to go and find someone that's gonna deliver a cake to you and your friends can virtually have I don't know what we're gonna do, but you need to you need to have a party somehow. I, I think the online cocktail thing that was happening lockdown one all those years ago in the sort of heady days of the first lockdown, are people still doing that? Can you do that for your goodbye or is it a bit hollow these days?
2: <laughs> well, I think that's what I have in mind. Something like that. But to be honest, I think as lockdowns have stretched on, that sort of like, oh, I might just crack open a drink and (laughs) watch a screen, you know, or call a friend because it's lockdown like that has really formed it's really sort of entrenched itself as a habit for me um <laughs>
1: just sort of every night being like ah I might just crack open a beer and are you playing any yeah. board games or anything like that uh, over over zoom or anything like that have you found a way to engage in the world that way
2: no we no I've been you know sort of live tweeting along with the seven thirty report. Is that this like similar sort of thing? Is that good mental health hygiene? <laughs> no,
1: it's not. <laughs> That's not a good way to let yourself <laughs> let your hair down. It's the live tweet, a half an hour of COVID news with Lee Sales is not my idea of a relaxathon. But you do you.
2: <laughs> All right. I promise for my Departure from my long-term job. I will not celebrate by popping a bottle of champagne and watching the news.
1: This is what happens when you don't grow up with television. This is what happens. You had no Get Smart. You had no Simpsons. Yet none of that. So what you do? is Watch Four Corners and Seven Thirty Report for fun.
2: It's true. I can't. I can't change who I am.
1: And we wouldn't want <laughs> you to anyway. God love you. Have a great goodbye.
2: Thank you so much. I um, I appreciate it. I appreciate not having to say the little sting at the beginning of the episode, the podcast episode, every record. Now that I can speak freely, I might drop some controversial truth bombs. I probably won't. Um, But I'll see you next week.
1: Catch you next (laughs) week on The Job. Bye. Bye.